You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I produced a list of, you know, the thousand most common words sort of drawn from a bunch of different sources and then tried to label all the parts of the rocket using only those words. You know, instead of like liquid oxygen tank, I had to label it like this large bag holds cold air for burning to make it go. Grammar Girl here, I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. And today, we definitely have cool stuff because I'm talking with Randall Monroe of XKCD fame and What If fame. So Randall has a degree in physics. Before starting XKCD, he worked on robots at NASA's Langley Research Center in Virginia. He started drawing stick figure comics that you've probably seen in his school notebooks and eventually scanned them and put the digital versions on a website. And it took off around 2006, 2007, around the same time Grammar Girl started, actually. And I remember putting the Affect Effect comic on that page on my website way back then because they are generously available with a Creative Commons license. Since then, Randall has written multiple books, including the bestsellers, What If? Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions, How To, which uses math and science to find the worst possible solutions to everyday problems, Thing Explainer that only uses the thousand most common words to explain different scientific devices, and now What If Too, just in time for the holidays. Thanks so much for being with me here, Randall. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. So I'm just so excited, and I'm sure all my listeners are too. We'll start with an absolute softball question. I'm sure you get asked this all the time. But um, Jay McCracken on Twitter wants to know how you pronounce XKCD or where it comes from. (laughs) Uh, You've got it right there. It's XKCD. I actually spent a lot of time trying to pick out four letters that would be clear that they didn't have an obvious pronunciation so that people would not try to read it as a word. I wanted it to look as much like a string of random letters as possible. And that's actually sort of hard to do because if you pull a random string of four letters, you'll often be like, oh, that looks a little bit like it's trying to be this word. Or, you know, that looks like you might be supposed to pronounce it. And it's not a word I know, but it's probably a word in some language. And so I tried to pick a combination of letters that would suggest you're not supposed to read this. Uh, as a word. Yeah, I think you succeeded. And I actually have to say, I appreciate at the very bottom of the FAQ on your website, you have like a little style entry. Do you want to share how to actually write? 
<laughs> yeah, I say the the preferred version is all lowercase, but all uppercase is an acceptable alternative because sometimes like if you're starting a sentence with it or you're using it in some publication where you're not assuming that people are going to know that it's, you know, that it's just a string of letters, sometimes people they prefer to capitalize it. So that's fine too. And then I add that capital X lowercase KCD is discouraged. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and, and it was helpful because I actually, I did wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like taking away the, you know, not, not as much being prescriptivist about it as just trying to take away the stress from people trying to figure out how to write this unusual string. Yeah, that was perfect. And now, what if two answers all these wonderful science and technology questions? And I know that's kind of like, your main thing because you were scientist yourself, but you also have these language um, cartoons on your website. And I, I just, I want to know like which ones do better on your website. Is it the, the tech ones or the language ones? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I feel like there's some of each that seem to be popular with people. Anytime I hit on, you know, something that it's like something we've all been, we've all noticed, but you know, no one had really quite put their finger on. I think language and tech both offer a lot of uh, subjects like that, where like little features of the world that we all interact with that are sort of annoying or confusing, but you don't really know how to how to do them better or how to think about them. And so it's sometimes fun to just point those out with comics and be like, isn't it funny that English is is confusing when it comes to talking this kind of uh, sentence? And it sort of feels to me like the same thing is pointing out, isn't it isn't it funny how this operating system is confusing when you're trying to do this particular operation. It is. Like to me, they're sort of, they get grouped together. They are. And that reminds me of a question Luca Ace asked on YouTube. They were wondering that they like one of your quite old comics about words that end in G-R-Y. So it says, think of words ending in G-R-Y, angry and hungry are two of them. There are only three words in the English language. What is the third word? It sort of leads into the philosophy you were just talking about, about language. Do you want to talk a little bit about that particular cartoon and then your sort of philosophy of language? Yeah, that I feel like that hits on a subject that I've come back to over and over, you know, throughout my life, which is like, I really love puzzles and I love like playing games with words and, and things. But there's like a category of puzzle that that you'd encounter a lot, and I feel like a lot like in school or you know with with from other students, where it's like a puzzle where someone has interpreted words in a, a surprising way, and they're trying to use it to like catch you, as if they've you know trapped you by by saying, well, actually, if you go back and read carefully, what I meant, what I said was, there are three words in the English language. So really, the third word is language. And it's sort of like, you can see what they're going for there. But that kind of thing is just like, not a good way to communicate, you know, it's like, it's like making making uh, language really adversarial, and be like, all right, I've caught you in using language badly. Except the whole point of language is to try to communicate ideas to other people, choosing to interpret your words in some kind of way that makes logical sense to you, but doesn't communicate ideas clearly. And then trying to use that to make it seem like other people aren't smart or aren't good at language. All, all it's doing is showing that you are 
using language in a weird way that's not effective, you know? So it's like, I I feel like bad, using bad communication to try to make other people feel like they're not smart, like they don't understand things is sort of a pet peeve of mine. That's great. And that reminds me, another um, listener asked, just, it, what is your language pet peeve? Do you have any others besides that? I don't know. There, there's a lot of branches of, I guess, prescriptivism or um, people really trying to use language to, to watching other people for slip ups or like mistakes. And, and I feel like that's sort of the same pet peeve in both language and in math and science. There's trying to understand how other people use language so that you can communicate better with them, which is good. Like learning how to speak and how to talk and how to communicate is really good. But using it to try to prove that you're better than someone else uh, is just like such a terrible way to be, you know? Yeah. Like if that's your goal all the time. And it, and you get the same thing in science and in math where people just like, they learn about physics and then they watch a movie just to like try to pick out all the mistakes. And like that can be a fun exercise, but it can also get really kind of tedious, you know, like what are you trying to prove? Mm hmm. I completely agree. I feel the same way when I go to a restaurant and people start looking for grammar errors on the menu. Like that. It's like not what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Carrie Irish on Twitter asked a question that leads sort of follows from this. So you have a project called Upgoer Five. And it's a I I think I'll just let you explain it. I think you'd do a better job than I would. <laughs> well, this started with I was drawing diagrams of uh, rockets. So I drew a diagram of a Saturn V rocket. But then I tried to label it using only the thousand most common words in English. So I, I ended up, I produced a list of, you know, the thousand most common words sort of drawn from a bunch of different sources and then tried to label all the parts of the rocket using only those words. And so, you know, instead of like liquid oxygen tank, I had to label it like this large bag holds cold air for burning to make it go. And then like at the bottom of the rocket where there's the engine nacelles, uh, where I just labeled them like fire comes out here. It turned out to be a sort of surprisingly fun exercise, both because like I could come up with silly terms for things, which was fun. And also like translating into this sort of simple lingo made me really have to learn about what all the parts were so I could figure out how to describe them. And there, there were parts of the rocket I, I, like I had seen them, but I had never actually asked, hey, what's that little thing sticking out over here? What's that for? Um, and so it turned into this really fun exercise. And after I did the Saturn V or the Upgoer V, I was like, this was fun. I want to do other stuff. Like I want to draw diagrams of other things. And so I got a, a whole bunch of different, you know, complicated objects like a laptop, a world map, a dishwasher, the earth, you know, tectonic plates, and did this same exercise with them, trying to label them using only this really simplified vocabulary. Did you find that it always made the item or what you're trying to explain more understandable or did sometimes it feel more like a barrier to communication? It it was it was a fun mix because in a lot of cases where the thing that I was trying to label is like a very technical thing that people wouldn't necessarily know the words for, then this exercise made it certainly much easier to understand. You know, at the top of the rocket, there's a little thing sticking off the top that uh, at the top of the Saturn V, right on top of the crew module. And it looks like a little like antenna or needle shaped thing. 
And it's called like the launch abort system. And I didn't, I didn't actually know what that was uh, until I started labeling the diagram. And I might, I had probably seen the phrase launch abort system. So I knew it had something to do with aborting a launch, I guess, but I didn't know what it was. And so when I was labeling it, uh, I had to learn what it did. And I called it something like this thing makes the makes the box holding the people go away really fast if there's a problem and everything is on fire, <laughs> um, which is what it does. It's this little rocket on top of the crew module that will yank the crew module to safety if the rocket starts to explode, which is very cool. But then other times it sort of became, it was almost more like a word puzzle, like a game where like I would draw a really, a really familiar object with a label. This happened especially in one of the last diagrams in this uh, book collection I put together uh, was a tree of life that showed how everything is related to everything else. And so I got to come up with like different names for all of the animals. And so like, I don't know, I, I remember porcupines were pointy cats. <laughs> And then, and then, and then a few of them. It was like this is. It was definitely more of a puzzle. There was one that I had vertical stripes that I labeled uh, "store checkout horse," I think, <laughs> which was a zebra. Uh -huh. And that's one where you have to think about it for a minute. Yeah, I was going to ask. There must be some animal names that are in the top one thousand most used words. Yeah, yeah. I had, um, I had dog, cat, I think, uh, horse, and then. And then maybe bear, which if only because that's one of the, there were some words that are more common as, as verbs than as nouns. And, and like really just depending case by case, I would like consider like which version of this is the common one. Is this use in the spirit of the rule or what? Mm -hmm. I think another example, there are a couple of animal examples like flies. I think the, the fly as a noun is probably not, wouldn't have made the cut, but when it's a verb, uh, it does. And so I can use the word fly to refer to the animal, even though that's not the meaning of the word that, you know, is technically on the list. Yeah. I was surprised that the word thousand wasn't on the list. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't quite make the cut. So I had to say the 10 hundred most common words. My favorite, my favorite numerical quirk of the list though, was <clears throat> if you look at how common the words for different numbers are, they like descend in, uh, you know, frequency as the numbers get bigger. So like one is more common than two, two is more common than three and all, all of those. And then, and then big round numbers like 10, 20 and a hundred are all more common than, you know, 21 or 98. And so on my list, the numbers one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, those are all, they all make the cut, but they're all getting further and further down the list. And then uh, seven is on the list. Eight is on the list. Nine was not. Nine was just below wow. the thousand. And then and then 10 made the cut because the round numbers are more common. And so I had every number from one through 10 except for nine. <laughs> Poor nine. So I would like label the decks on a, you know, the I had a diagram of like a cruise ship and I was like floor one, floor two, you know, instead of the, you know, deck one, deck two. And then floor eight. And then the floor after eight. <laughs> And then floor 10. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and you created a tool that people can use if they want to follow mm -hmm. the rules, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, I put it online at xkcd.com slash simple writer. 
it just it works like a spell check and it just tells you if the word you're using is on the list or if one of its forms is and so people can try to like it, it's been fun seeing people will will try to like write their um you know phd thesis they'll write the abstract out using only those the most common words and it's it's really it's a tricky exercise to do it clearly you know it doesn't make it doesn't make simple explanations necessarily like easy but what i found was cuz often you know when you write things that way you have to write them in convoluted ways that make it harder to understand but what i found was it was re- it was really helpful to have that reminder of which words are common and which ones aren't because people you know i sort of joked about how when i finished writing the book I had been writing in this simple language so long that I was now incapable of talking normally, um, which I said as a joke, but really the opposite was true. By the even on the very last day of writing, I was still using words that are not on the list and being caught, by, you know, by the the tools I was using because speech is so automatic. You know, it's like writing is so automatic, and you don't always remember. Like I think. The I, the last thing I remember tripping up the spell checker, you know, the thousand word checker. I remember tripping it up on the last day of writing with the word astronaut like twice. <laughs> because I just, you know, forget, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a common word, right? You know, that's what you used to refer to that. <laughs> and so it's nice to to remember that, like, because it's hard to remember what it's like not to know stuff. And so it's helpful to have this sort of objective check to be like, I know you think this is a common word, but remember this might not be for everyone else. And uh, can you think of a way to say it without it? That's amazing. And and that's actually not the only thing you've done that people um, sort of mimic. I saw on your website, mm-hmm. the roller coaster thing was really cool. Do you talk about that? Yeah. At, at some point I had the idea that it would be funny to, um, you know, you when you go over a roller coaster, there's that part where they take, uh, you go right over the drop and when everyone screams and puts their hands up, they take a picture. Uh, and then they'll sell you the picture on the way out. Yeah. And I was thinking it would be funny to like try to take a picture that was like as incongruous as possible. And so I did a comic about someone taking a chessboard onto a roller coaster with all the pieces glued down and like holding it, pulling it out, you know, out of their coat when they're about to go over the drop and holding it and like thinking like, <laughs> ah, what move am I going to make? And so they have the picture of everyone around them screaming and they're just like thinking about the chessboard. This was a case where I, I was like, oh, that's a funny idea. I don't know if that would really work. You might get in trouble, but it would be it, it's a funny concept. So I'll do a comic about it uh, and then I can enjoy it that way, at least. And I did not expect how many people would then go and try to pull this off. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. 
It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. So going back to word stuff, is so you have actually coined a word, um, and it, it, I've talked about this before in the podcast, it's actually incredibly rare for people to intentionally coin a word and have it sort of actually be used. And it was um, Malamantu. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently you had a cartoon where you named this word and within a day, it was in Urban Dictionary and on the WordNick um, dictionary site too. So um, congratulations. And <laughs> you want to tell people about your word? Oh, I, I I feel like that's almost uh, uh, cheating because it's a word about coining words improperly. So it's just like bait for language people, it is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so I feel like it's too it's almost too easy because like if you make a joke about language itself, all the people who are super into language will will, uh, you know, glom onto it. And and so. And then, of course, those are the same people who edit WordNick. And, you know, and so, <laughs> true, true. Yeah, and so it's that's almost like I feel like fish in a barrel. The hard, <laughs> the hard thing is is um, is words that are not related to language. But what I, you know, I I wasn't trying to coin a word. It turned into a almost a little bit of a thing on Wikipedia. Um, I was just trying to make fun of how there are a few words that Wikipedia just really likes to use, like portmanteau mm -hmm. and malapropism and it will always mention these words in the article about anything any term that is that is one of those things um and the word and, I, and it's like those are words that i had like never seen anywhere else except wikipedia i mean they get used other places but that's what i associate them with and so i was like trying to make up a word that would use both of those and then talk about how it could be how they were combined so it's a, a malamanto is a portmanteau that is incorrectly put together to, uh, which is a mal, so it's a malapropism that's also a portmanteau. And then the definition for this in the comic gets to use the, both of those words a lot. So it's like <laughs> the ultimate Wikipedia article. And I really was just poking fun at Wikipedia. I did not expect what would happen, which was in addition to the places you mentioned, someone tried to create a Wikipedia article for the word. And then thus began a tremendous like flame war on the talk pages of people debating whether or not 
this word should have a Wikipedia entry. (laughs) And honestly, I thought it shouldn't. Like, I was using it in this comic, but that's not, and and like defining it in the comic, but in a weird way, like that's defining it within the fictional world of the comic. That's not a reliable source for it being used in the real world until other sources use it. Right. But many people had different opinions on this. You know, I didn't, uh, I think I didn't weigh in, but it turned into this gigantic, like back and forth with like so many editors getting involved. Like, I forget if Jimmy Wales finally weighed in. And I don't know, I I really love a good Wikipedia edit war because they're like, it's just like when you get a bunch of people who are very earnest and like trying to figure out the right way to handle something like this. I have a soft spot for the kind of earnest, civic-minded enthusiasm of Wikipedia editors. Yeah. Well, you were saying it's language person bait. It was also kind of Wikipedia bait because it was about Wikipedia too, right? Yeah. 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 I've done a couple a couple of comics that have um, created Wikipedia arguments. Although one, uh, another thing that I guess a word I've coined, I talked about how sometimes there will be things mentioned on Wikipedia that, you know, are, don't have citations. And people will tag them with like citation needed. But I noticed what a thing that would happen sometimes, which is that people, someone would put a fact on Wikipedia and then someone writing about it, a journalist who's like in a hurry and just needs background information or something would like mention the fact in their article based on just skimming Wikipedia. But then later someone comes along in Wikipedia and is like, hey, this doesn't have a citation. And they'll Google it to find a citation and they find that article. And then they're like, oh, here's a here's a published source citing, you know, uh, backing this up. Yeah. And they'll add a citation to that source. And then once there's one reliable citation, then other sources, you know, journalists who are being more careful will be like, oh, you know, I found a non Wikipedia source. So uh, and then they repeat it and then provide more citations. <laughs> and so I, I, I did a little chart that was like how citations form. And I called this uh, cytogenesis. but. I just recently found that Wikipedia has been maintaining a list of cytogenesis incidents. Oh, that's cool. Where like they're they're documenting cases where this has happened and like tracking down who was the first one to mistakenly cite Wikipedia and then like, you know, where are all the places it's been repeated and sort of trying to track down these cases of Wikipedia sourced misinformation, which is also really cool. Yeah. And I had no idea that that term had like made it out there and, and was being used to like people were actually tracking down all these cases of it. Cytogenesis. So that's really cool. I, lo- I love that they're tracking it because it's an important um, problem in the information you know, environment. But it's also, it's really neat that they're doing that. Um, oh, and it reminds me, I loved in What If 2 how occasionally you had citation needed in the text. <laughs> I know. I never get tired of that. I just love, I love that you can throw that in there to be like, this thing, is it really true? Who knows? You know, maybe someone should go find out. But I like I like putting it on really obvious facts. You know, like the earth is fairly large compared to a person. And then like citation needed. Right. It's like go find me a paper that that proves this. <laughs> I know. That's great. Um, well, let's get to some other um, questions from my readers and listeners. So um, this was a good one. Steve from Twitter wants to know what you think is the most made up sounding bit of technical jargon. Well, you're thinking I will. Um, one of my favorites is um, the X Games. I love the names of the 
tricks that the skateboarders and skiers do. And I imagine like, to me, the announcers sound like that was an amazing flippity florp. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, of yeah, double yeah. Cracker barrel. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. There were a whole bunch. I was looking at a list of like test tests that they use for bicycle helmets. The X game things reminded me. And, and I remember all of the terms that they used for how a helmet can rotate on the head looked like terms for skateboard tricks. <laughs> Because it was like, uh, there was like rough, grippy anvil, I think, no neck, uh, tight strap, sticky head form, severe an anvil angle. I don't know. I, I don't know. There, I, I do always like it when there's a, you know, a term that's like for an equation or something. And it's just like so-and-so's weird function, you know, <laughs> and, and you're like, do they really just call it that? I guess they do. Okay. Um, <laughs> But then I also like like a really good, fun to say technical term. Maybe my favorite of those was I was looking through a list of like medical procedures that involve radiation doses, and the one that the one that involved like the highest uh, radiation dose from this list was had a five word name that was so much fun to say that it like it stuck in my mind, and I would so I and I just like repeating it now and then. It was a Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt placement. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just find that so satisfying, you know. It's a good it's a good series of words and shunt placement has such good uh it's so punchy. So um another another listener asked just in general, what is your favorite word right now? I don't know where I hit this word, but I just just ran across the word afforestation. Mm. It's like the opposite of deforestation. Mm-hmm afforestation it's like the the growth and spread of a forest i like words that have like both a pretty like they sound cool and they have an, a nice meaning i've heard apricity defined a couple of different ways but the most poetic definition was um the warmth of the sun in winter oh that is nice which i and i think i think it it makes sense because it's not just that like it's the warmth of the sun, but like separate from the warmth of the air, mm -hmm. you know, like it can be really cold out, but then you put yourself in the direct sun and like you're, you can warm up. So it's like that kind of warmth. Nice. Um, Something to look forward to in winter. Yeah. Um, so now we're getting into the, the, I think of like the weirder questions. <laughs> so um, Stephen Gilbert on Facebook wanted to know, do you ever get nightmares from your imagined scenarios? No, I don't think so. Um, it's more the other way around. There are scenarios I will avoid writing about because they're things that like weird me out too much or because they're the kinds of things I have nightmares about. Um, but it's more that I don't want to think about them a lot while I'm awake. <laughs> you know, um, there have been a couple of alarming questions people ask about teeth. Huh. There was one in the first what if that was like, could you freeze your teeth to a, lo a cold enough temperature that when you drank a cup of hot coffee, they'd shatter? Uh, I know, right? And then, and then in this book, someone asked, um, if your teeth just kept growing, um, and then when they got too long, they just fell out and you swallowed them or something, and then you grew new ones, would that cause any problems? And in both cases, I'm like, I don't want to think about this. I'm not going to try to research this question because I don't want to think about it because that's like, it just reminds me of those dreams when your teeth are falling out or, you know, those... Uh, <laughs> 
I think that's one of those common recurring dreams. Yeah. That was one and, of the things I liked sim- about What If 2, actually, is that you had the longer answers and then you broke them up with sections that had shorter answers where you just showed, like, maybe the alarming questions like that one. And then you just answered, mm-hmm. like, no, <laughs> or I don't want to yeah, think about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, because there are a lot of questions where that people ask where it's like either the answer is really simple or the there isn't really an answer, but the question is really funny. And I wanted a way to share those. And one thing I noticed is that a lot of the questions are from kids. Do you get the majority of your questions from kids or is it sort of a mix? Um, I would say it's a mix. Um, I think in general, kids ask better questions. (laughs) One thing that happened after I, especially after I published the first What If book, is that a lot of people who are like my age, you know, have small kids running around and they... Kids will will you know stereotypically do the thing where you ask, they you explain something and they ask why and then you have to explain why that works and then they ask why about that <laughs> and eventually and it doesn't take long to you know you can ask anyone why a couple of times and get to something that stumps them. But what parents started doing is when they got asked a question by their kids that stumped them, they would be like, "Oh well, let's send it to the what if guy and <laughs> see what he he see if he can answer it." And so I became like the uh, the answerer of last resort for people's like little kid questions. Mm-hmm. And that's really fun because, yeah, I, I think kids questions, they tend to be like less, less trying to cram in a bunch of science concepts to make a question cool and impressive and more just asking simple questions that they don't know the answers to. And those are the questions that often turn out to be like the most fun and sometimes like really complicated. You know, like adults will ask questions about what if you had a train going at near the speed of light and you put a nuclear bomb on it and then it was going to detonate while a rocket goes past in the other direction. This whole thing's happening on a volcano and they're like (laughs) trying to add in exciting elements. And then a little kid will ask a question like one of my favorite questions in the book comes from a five-year-old named Amelia and it was, what would happen if I filled the solar system with soup out to Jupiter? Yeah, that's the first one. And like, and that's a more fun question. And it's also like, it's like more interesting scientifically and more fun and ultimately like actually way more destructive than the nuclear bomb volcano train question could possibly be. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Let's see, the Grackle King wants to know, this is just random, what is your favorite thing about bees? Yeah, I think my very favorite thing about bees is the the weird laws covering them like they if like a swarm of bees is flying around like people keep bees um and so their property when you have them in a hive but when they leave the hive you can't like constrain them on your property like you can with other farm animals you know they wander all over the place and so the question is like whose bees are they when they're like in your neighbor's yard uh, and the law has had to like deal with this because there have been a bunch of, you know, bee related. There's been all kinds of litigation. Hmm. Germany in particular has really complicated bee specific law. Um, and and there's this general idea that like a bee in a hive belongs to the beekeeper, but a flying bee belongs to God is what the <laughs> saying is. <laughs> oh and, and so like when your bees are out foraging, uh, they're not yours. They're just part of the environment, like wind, you know. Oh and then um, and then if your bees swarm and leave the hive uh, in most jurisdictions, I think they only remain your property while you are in active pursuit of them. <laughs> but the moment you give up, then they're just nature's bees now. That is the best. And, thing I, about and bees. I really 
Yeah, I like I like weird specific bee law. That's wild. And you had a thing about um, weird specific egg laws in your book too. <laughs> how, how that made me laugh. California's egg laws. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a regulation um, barring people from making false or misleading statements about eggs, which is in you know poultry regulations, and it's clearly intended to refer to anyone who's like selling eggs. But I I was like, what if I'm just out here like explaining my theories about eggs uh you know can i just say anything i want like eggs are solid all the way through birds don't come out of them they're uh they're just these weird rocks birds (laughs) just no one knows where birds come from uh but that might get me in trouble with california regulators (laughs) that's great one thing i noticed that was really cool looking through your bio is that the international astronomical union recently named an asteroid after you. So that's like super cool. And it got me thinking like, that's a great honor, but it made me wonder, you've done so many amazing and interesting things. What is the thing you've done that you're actually most proud of? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. That feels like reflect on all, reflect on your successes. Which one's the best? I'm and sorry I'm like, oh, if you man, don't want to answer it, like, it's fine. No, um, there, was, there was a comic I did that I spent like two years on um, that was a history of Earth's temperature over time. And as you scrolled down the map, it showed like how things have warmed up from the ice ages until, you know, now from the, the last glacial maximum until the present. Because people talk about how, you know, when you talk about climate change, they say, well, you know, the climate has changed before. And that's true. And I wanted to sort of illustrate what that change looked like and how the current change is really different. And so I made and I, and I spent forever on this, trying to figure out the best way to show it and ended up making this graph that when you scroll down it, you see the temperature slowly creeping up as like human history goes by. And then at the very end, you see the current warming, which is a real sharp departure. And I did this comic and I, you know, got help from scientists. I went, I went over all the details. I went through the research um, because I wanted to get it right, you know, because it's such an important topic. Um, and then I was really gratified by the number of people, like the amount that it got shared around. It ended up being one of my most viewed, you know, things I've ever made. And I felt so happy that the, that it was something that I was like getting across an important message that got shared around so much. That's... And, and you know, hearing from people who are like, oh, whoa, I did not realize this, you know, because that's what I was going for. That's wonderful. Oh, that's great. Well, the new book is called What If 2. And, you know, I think my dad would actually love it. I probably, he doesn't watch my show, so I'm going to get it for him <laughs> for Christmas. And Perfect. Don't not, no one tell. Not ruining the yeah. surprise here. Just between you and me and all the all your listeners. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, if you like this interview, go get What If 2 uh, for yourself or a friend or family member. And, um, you know, Randall, where where would you like people to go to, you know, follow you in the future? Oh, well, I mean, my my website is xkcd.com, and then I'm on various social media platforms as xkcd, which it's uh, a little bit annoying to remember, but also it's very short, easy to type, and it's the same everywhere. That's great. Well, thanks so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you. No, it was great chatting with you. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. 
then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.